0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you take them and open to the book of Galatians chapter 1? Galatians chapter 1, the text is also printed in the bulletin for you this morning, but I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open them or to open your smartphone and click through to the app if you're more technologically advanced than myself. Galatians chapter 1, we started just last week, we began going through the book of Galatians, which will occupy us for the next several months, with a bit of introduction and And in some ways, this morning continues the introduction, and yet Paul is already into perhaps his highest theme of the book, the purity of the gospel. The purity of the gospel. In these verses, he's going to set out to defend the purity of the gospel from all distortions, to defend it from all distortions. It's a a wise thing to know our weakness and to know our tendency to wander. Prone to wander, Lord we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. It's a common human temptation to want to distort the gospel in various ways, not because we want to do it, but because we're tempted to try to take some of the glory for ourselves. And Paul in these verses strongly and eagerly defends the purity of the gospel from all distortions. I'm going to read for us. Galatians 1, 6-10, and it's our custom here, I ask if you are able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? This is Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. I am astounded that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word given by inspiration of your spirit to be a guide to your church, to lead us into all truth, to give us everything that we need for life and godliness. We do ask that the same spirit who inspired the words to be written will now open the eyes of our hearts, that we may see wonderful things and be drawn back to Christ from all our wanderings. For it's in his name that we pray, amen. Please be seated. Every person in this room is a preacher. Every person in this room is a preacher. That might surprise some of you to learn. It might worry some of you to learn. Don't worry. We're not going to have a sign-up sheet so everyone can take their turn up here preaching from the pulpit. But it remains true that every person here is a preacher. In fact, we we know over the recent years that a phrase that has gained much popularity is the need for us as believers to preach the gospel to ourselves. Every day. And one of the reasons this is so popular and so true for us is, is because the alternative is not that we would be silent and not preach anything to ourselves. If we don't preach the gospel to ourselves every day, the alternative for us is that we are preaching something else. That we are reinforcing in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, some other truth other than the gospel. You see, all of us relate to God in some way Every day, all of us relate to others around us in some way. Every day, all of us will relate to the world at large, people out there in some way. Every day, all of us will struggle with temptation and will deal with besetting sins of life every day. And the way that we go about these things, the way we relate to God and to people and to to the world, to sin and to temptation, will be informed by something. And it will either be informed by the truth of the gospel of Christ as we find it in the scriptures. Or it will be informed by some distortion of that that we come up with in our minds. They will all be informed by something. And so what Paul does in this passage is to radically and strongly defend the purity of the gospel. And for all of us, whether preaching in a church or preaching to ourselves... The one message we need more than anything else on a daily basis is to know the truth of the gospel, to know the forgiveness of sins in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Paul defends the gospel in three ways in this text. Well, he has three points, we shall say. First, he talks about the problem of gospel distortions. Second, the danger of gospel distortions. And third, he gives us the cure for gospel distortions the problem the danger and finally the cure for these gospel distortions let's look at verse 6 again verse 6 I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel Paul is astonished there is a sense of urgency that Paul would convey and we hear that urgency in two ways first this is the time in the letter here, right after the, the doxology that he's just given, the salutation in the first few verses. This is the time of the letter when ordinarily his readers would be anticipating a prayer of thanksgiving. If you read all of Paul's other letters to the churches, he has the salutation, and then he launches into a prayer of thanksgiving, saying, I thank our God and Father in all of my prayers and all of my remembrances of you, some prayer to give thanks for the church. Even in the book of 1 Corinthians, And if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that poor church had more problems than you could shake a stick at. I think if we had half the problems of the Corinthian church, most people would not want to come to church here. But even there, Paul, Paul gives thanks for the work that God is doing among them. And yet, in this letter, right at the time that they expect Paul is going to give thanks to the Lord, instead, he's astonished at how quickly they've deserted God. Secondly, We feel the urgency not only because we would anticipate Thanksgiving and instead we get rebuke, but but secondly, I have to imagine that the Apostle Paul was probably not easily astonished by sin. He was probably not very easily astonished by sin. A new pastor, maybe. A relatively new apostle, maybe. They could have been astonished. But Paul has been around the block a few times. This is at least 14 or 15 years after Paul's Damascus Road experience, when God called him in Christ, Paul is an experienced apostle. Paul has planted these churches and others and written to them. When you've been around the block, when you've been in ministry for a while, you learn that people sin. Even believers, even mature Christians sin. We are saints, yes, but we are also sinners. And what sinners do is they sin. And after a while, you stop being astonished when people in the church sin. It's still sad. It's still often tragic when we see sin and we see the consequences of sin in the church, and yet what it's not is surprising. And so for Paul to say he is just absolutely astonished at how quickly the Galatians are deserting God who's called them in the grace of Christ, This, this says something to us, that what's happening in these churches in Galatia is probably worse than your average church problems. This is probably worse than average, and, and this is what he says it is. What is it that's so bad? He says, I'm astonished that, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. No wonder Paul is astonished. He says what they're doing is so quickly, after Paul has left, so quickly they're deserting God. God. This is something that strikes at the very heart of the Christian gospel, the heart of the Christian message, what it is that separates us from the world, and they're deserting God. I think we can note, just by means of comparison, the differences here between the Corinthian church and the Galatian church. In Corinthians, yes, they had many problems. There were ethical problems and moral problems of behavior, and yet what they were doing was their lives were not adorning the gospel with good works, and yet Paul never said to them that they were abandoning the very heart of the gospel. But here in Galatians, he does not point first to to moral problems or ethical problems first. He simply says, you're abandoning God who's called you in Christ. They are abandoning the very heart of the gospel message. And what he says here is he's astonished that they are deserting him. This word is a word that we find often in, in military contexts for a person who, in the heat of battle switches sides, is a traitor, is, as the old commentaries say, a turncoat, one who, in the midst of the conflict, changes sides. It was used in in schools of philosophy for someone who simply changes their mind. They're over here, they're in this school, and they, they give up on it. They desert it, and they go to the completely opposite side. And he says, this is what they are doing. They are deserting him who called them, him who called them. Not simply a school of philosophy, a doctrine, or a teaching. What he says is, they are deserting a person. He doesn't say, "I'm so astonished that you are deserting this teaching in favor of another teaching." He says, "You are deserting God, Him who called you in the grace of Christ, for something else." He doesn't. He's not personally offended. He doesn't say, "I'm astonished you've, you've given up on what I taught you for now for what these other teachers are giving you." He says, "You have deserted God who calls you in Christ." They are not leaving a doctrine. They are leaving God himself. We see later in in Galatians 5, 4, when he says to them with equal severity, he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And so we hear something of the severity that leads Paul to be astonished so quickly. They're deserting God. He says they are severed from Christ because of what they have done. And so the the all-important question becomes, what are they doing? What are they doing that has astonished Paul, that's led them to say this is tantamount to deserting God who has called them in Christ and going somewhere else? What could possibly be happening in these churches that would lead Paul to using such strong language? And this is what we learn. There were false teachers. Paul had planted this church, and then he moves on. He leaves on his missionary journey to go to other churches. And there were false teachers who were coming into the church and teaching that in order to be saved, you need two things, which is a problem already. They need, you need two things that you need to believe in Jesus, and you need to obey the law. The false teachers came to teach, in order to be saved, you need to believe in Christ, and to obey the law. Now, we need to hear this with the urgency that Paul hears it with. That Anytime we make salvation dependent on Anything in us on our obedience, rather than simply depending wholly, purely on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He says, if we do that, we've deserted Christ. We can't say we'll have a little bit of Christ and a little bit of, of this obedience. We can't even say we will have ninety percent Christ and ten percent obedience. Ninety-nine percent Christ. He says, if you add anything at all to the gospel of Christ, you've deserted Christ. It's it's all or nothing. But think of how the Galatians might have been tempted to respond to Paul. Think of what they might have said. They might have said, listen, Paul, why why are you getting so upset about this? I mean, it's not as though we're teaching people to be atheists. It's not as though we're teaching them to believe in the gods of the Roman pantheon and and completely desert Judeo-Christian morality. I mean, listen, Paul, we're simply teaching them to obey the law of God. I mean, this is, after all, God's law. This is not a bad thing. It's wholly righteous and good. Don't you want people to obey the law of God? And I think we hear, when we when we say it that way, we hear something of the deceitfulness of this false teaching. That these are teachers who are coming in and they're taking something that's good. The law of God is good. It's God's idea. He came up with it. It's good. And yet they're using it for evil purposes. They're using the law of God, which was a gift from God, and now they're using it to take glory away from God in Christ. And so... He says that they've taken this good thing, they're using it in an evil way. They're distorting the gospel. That's his word in verse 7. He says, there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. What they do when they add our obedience to the grace of Christ is they are distorting the gospel. This is a gospel distortion. This word, distort, it literally means to reverse. Not simply to distort or impair, but to turn something completely into its opposite. We, we see the word in Acts two twenty when turn the sun into darkness. We see it in James four when he says turn laughter into grief. And now here in Galatians, we're turning the good news of Christ into bad news. We're, we're literally reversing the gospel because there is a very particular order to the gospel. There is a very particular order, and we hear it clearly. When we say it this way, the gospel is the good news that God has accepted me in Christ, and therefore I obey. God has accepted me wholly, completely, entirely because of Christ. And therefore, because of that, I obey. But you see, the the false teachers are actually reversing the order, distorting the gospel by reversing the order so that it says, I obey, and therefore God accepts me. Their acceptance with God, their salvation, is now becoming dependent on their obedience. It's becoming dependent on what they have done. Now, we we want to insist on the first. We say, we're accepted by God and therefore we obey. And we insist, yes, we must obey. That is the natural consequence. That is, if we know the gospel, if we love and believe the, the truth of the gospel of Christ on the cross given for us, that will lead naturally to obedience. But that obedience is not what earns us our acceptance with God. That obedience is not in any way affecting God's decision to love us in Christ. Rather, we're accepted completely by Christ's work on the cross, which then leads us to obey. Some have said it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. That faith is faith that leads to obedience. The obedience doesn't save us, but it is a natural outflow of our faith. And Paul says, when you mix this up, when you add obedience to the reason that you're accepted by God in Christ, you've deserted Christ, you've distorted the gospel, your faith is no longer in Christ, it's in your ability to obey. It's in your ability to obey. And he says, that's not good news. If, if our acceptance with God is dependent on our ability to obey God's law to some certain degree, and, and we, we know, when we're honest, we know we never keep it perfectly, but if we say, my acceptance with God, his pleasure with me, his acceptance of me, is somehow based on my ability to keep it to some standard, that's bad news. That's bad news because we will never live up to even our own standards that we might choose to set. And when we do this, we rob God of glory because we would be the ones responsible for our salvation. We would rob Christ of his worth because what we would be saying is this, that, that the work that Christ did on the cross is no longer sufficient. It did not accomplish everything for the salvation of sinners. It would rob us of peace of conscience. How could we have any peace in our mind, in our spirit, if if our salvation, if our acceptance with God was at every moment dependent on my ability to obey rather than simply dependent on Christ. It robs us of joy because there's no finished work of Christ for us to delight in, to take joy in and simply to cling to and say this is all I have and all I need for my acceptance before God. It would rob our lives of their fruitfulness because the scriptures say that we do not produce fruit unless we are Dwelling in the vine that is in Christ, it becomes simply bad news. And we must be aware that this remains a clear and present danger for us today, for our church. The danger of gospel distortions. If we can just simply generalize for a moment, there's two broad brush, big picture ways we tend to distort the gospel. And here's a generalization. In general, liberal churches tend to distort the gospel by taking things away from it. They look at the hard parts and say, okay, we don't have to believe that. We don't have to believe the virgin birth. We don't have to believe the miracles of Christ were real. We don't have to believe the inspiration of the scriptures or the the, uh, physical bodily resurrection of Christ. They take things away. And that distorts the gospel. But as a generalization, again, conservative churches, we distort the other direction. We tend to add things. So we say, here's the gospel, but we also require that you hold to the same social and political views as we do. We require that you would feel strongly about the same social causes we feel strongly about. And and none of us would ever say it in these words, that, that you must have these views in order to be saved. But is there not some practical outworking, that this is the message that we can send, that you are only believers if you believe in Christ and have this view and feel as strongly as we do. And it creeps into our thinking slowly but surely. After all, aren't we just obeying God's law? After all, wouldn't God have this view if we asked him? And yet we can use these good things, this obedience which is good and right and holy and good, but we use it for the wrong purposes. Martin Luther once sagely remarked, I believe, that but there are two ways to fall off a horse. You can fall to the right and you can fall to the left, but either way you end up on the ground. And he said our task is to learn to ride the gospel horse straight up and down, avoiding both errors. Sometimes we're so afraid of one error that we lean to the side so we don't fall off that side and we fall off the other side. So it is for us that we can be so afraid of certain gospel distortions that we in, unintentionally Will fall into others. And the task for us as the church, the task for all of us as preachers, is to cling to the cross of Christ, not taking anything away, not adding anything to it, but clinging only to the grace and mercy of God displayed for us at Calvary. That this is our righteousness and this alone, that which is given to us through Christ. Nothing In my hands I bring. No obedience in my hands I bring. No enlightened social views in my hand do I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. That is the problem of gospel distortions that we are always tempted to add or to take away. This is prone to wander, Lord, I feel. This constant human temptation. Let me insert some of my obedience. Let me take some of the glory, just a little bit for myself, so I can demonstrate my worth. Rather than Acknowledging that I am wholly dependent on Christ. Acknowledging that there is nothing I can do for myself save in the grace of God given to us in Christ. This is the problem. And as Paul has shown us now, the problem of gospel distortions, he shows us the danger of gospel distortions. You might think the first few verses, he's already given us the danger. Severed from Christ, we're abandoning, deserting God who called us. But he goes even further in verses 8 and 9. Even if we, this is verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He says, Anyone who, who tampers with the message of the gospel is cursed by God. The King James uses the old fashioned word, the Greek word, says, Anyone is anathema, devoted to destruction, set apart by God for destruction. They are cursed by God. Now, it seems like Paul is being pretty heavy and severe in this letter so far. And that's true, he is. But I, I want us to see, we'll talk about that word in a minute, but, but before we do, I want us to see his, the mercy and the pastoral concern that I believe motivates Paul in this passage, because this is what it is, a pastoral concern for his churches and, and mercy in his heart towards the people that leads him to write like this. Paul's an apostle, and I believe that he rightly and correctly understands his own responsibility for the churches, his own responsibility for their spiritual welfare, and he has a pastoral concern for them, a pastoral concern to see that the people in his churches are are growing in the faith and not backsliding, that they're learning true doctrine and not false doctrine, that they're beginning to grow in spiritual maturity and, and display more spiritual fruit, not less, that they are clinging to Christ and not falling away from him. And now what Paul sees as he looks at this church is he sees that these people are clinging to a false gospel. They are believing a false gospel and they are deserting Christ. And and he sees people who are just about to make shipwreck of their faith. He understands the severity of that, that they're believing a false gospel. And so we understand why all Paul's pastoral alarm bells are are just going off like crazy here he's looking at a church that's believing a false gospel and and so he's intervening with urgency here because he's trying to save their souls see he said when he says i'm astonished there's some rhetorical flair in that i am just astonished that you would think that way but but he's not simply trying to shame them he's not simply trying to guilt them into coming to his position. He's not trying to make them feel bad. His goal is, is to restore them into the faith, to restore them in the faith, to bring them back to Christ, to protect the purity of the gospel as it's preached in the church for the salvation of souls because a false gospel has no power to save. And so there's a pastoral concern that underlies everything he writes. And, and we acknowledge that even today in our churches here, pastors and sessions of elders still have this responsibility to care pastorally for the church and to intervene at times. We call this the practice of church discipline. That the, the elders will at times when necessary, if there is someone in the church who is going astray, whether in their, their ethics and their morals and their behavior or in their doctrine, that it is the responsibility of the pastors and the elders together to intervene, to, to step into that situation with, with some exhortation and rebuke. Because the danger Is not that they bring a bad name on themselves, but that their soul is lost. They make shipwreck of their faith, and the church has a scar. And so to protect the purity of the church and the faith of the people, sometimes it's necessary to pastorally yet passionately step in and restore those who are going astray. That's what Paul is doing here. He says in in chapter 6, he explains this very thing. He says, brothers, This is chapter 6, verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. That's what Paul is doing here in chapter 1, that he sees them going astray, and he is pastorally stepping in to restore. But this is what he says, verse 8 and 9, where he sets this hard boundary, this very firm edge. He says, anyone who teaches anything beyond this is a curse. They are anathema, be it even an angel from heaven or another preacher. Anyone who teaches another gospel is accursed. He's using this word here that, that is more common in the Old Testament. I think he, he draws it from the Old Testament. Particularly in Joshua, this is what we see is that the Israelites were coming into the promised land. And they were warring against the Canaanites. They were driving the Canaanites out of the land so that they could take possession of this land that God had given to them. Uh, God said they must completely and utterly destroy and kill everything in the land because if they didn't, it would become a snare to them. We read particularly Joshua 7, and we won't turn there, but you can can read it later. Joshua 7 is the story of the Battle of Jericho. We know the story well, but remember, not only do they march around it and the walls fall down, but God says everything in the city is devoted to destruction. That is, it is anathema, it's a curse. It must be destroyed, burned with fire. With two exceptions, some of the the precious metals were to be brought into the temple and the family of Rahab because she had hidden the spies. But everything else was to be completely and utterly destroyed, devoted to destruction. And the logic for that, we hear God's explanation that if they don't destroy them, there will be these remnants of Canaanite society, of Canaanite theology and Canaanite religion that, that continue to exist among his people and they will lead his people away from God. He said, your own faith will be in danger if these things are not destroyed. They will lead you away from the grace of God into other religions, literally the Canaanite religions. And So he says, these things, they must be destroyed, burned with fire. And that's where Paul is drawing this word from. When he says, if anyone would come, preaching another gospel other than the one you have heard from me, be it even an angel from heaven. He even, there's some self-implication. He says, even if we even his own self, if if they preach a distorted gospel, let them be devoted to destruction. Like the Canaanite society in the Old Testament, let them be set apart by God for total and utter destruction. It is better to do that than to allow them to remain and to put your own faith in danger. To allow there to be something among you that would lead you away from Christ, that would cause you not to trust fully in him. So we hear... We've seen the danger of gospel distortions. We hear, or we've seen the problem. We hear the danger. But he also gives us something of the cure for gospel distortions. Something of the cure. It's in verse 10. Now, of course, in one sense, the cure for a distorted gospel is the pure gospel. And Paul will spend literally almost all of Galatians giving that to us. But in verse 10, first, he gives us something of the heart attitude that will protect us from being seduced by false gospels. Look at verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul has here a single-minded devotion to nothing but the pleasure of God. And all that he does, and all that he teaches, and all that he believes... In all that he is daily preaching to himself to seek first and foremost this and only this, that which is pleasing to God. He knows that this is true of all of us, that, that we are standing on that day before God and God alone is judged. It is to him alone that we must answer, and it will be his opinion alone will be what counts. Proverbs twenty nine, twenty five says the fear of man is a snare. The fear of man is a snare those who think too highly of the opinions of others and what others think will be led astray. They will be led to compromise. They will be led to teach something that's not as hard to accept as the gospel. The gospel is a stumbling stone. The scripture itself tells us that. And those who are, are, There's a good way to be sensitive. There's a good way to care for what others, how they are responding. But there's also a, an insidious way. And he says if if you care too much... distort the gospel to make it fit just a little bit better with their current lives so they, they don't feel the rebuke and they don't feel a stumbling stone that is a snare paul himself later in galatians says he boasts in nothing but the cross of christ through which the world has been crucified to him and him to the world the world has has no hold on him he seeks only to please his master as this good servant does and his master is only god are we trying to please god I believe nothing pleases God more than when we delight ourselves only in the finished work of Christ on the cross, when we will gladly set aside all of our good works and we will simply rest. The sufficiency of Christ, knowing that his words are true, it is finished. It is finished. There's nothing more to be done. We are saved by his work when we boast that Christ is all we need. I believe it pleases God when we're daily living in this freedom, in this truth of the gospel, not in slavish fear. In other words, I would suggest the cure for gospel distortions, which are an ever-present temptation for us, the cure is to daily preach to ourselves the true gospel, daily be reminding ourselves, daily basking in this truth, fully aware of our own propensity for, for weakness and for wandering. Therefore, we daily go back and we daily say, This and this alone is all my hope. That Christ on the cross has accomplished all that I need. That I am freely accepted by God in Christ. Therefore, I obey. Therefore, I have peace of conscience. Therefore, I have joy in my spirit that Christ has done what I could not do. Therefore, I relate to God as my father, not as my my master out of slavish fear. Therefore, I relate to others... In the church, as brothers and sisters, I relate to those outside of the church as those who are, are uh, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We care for them. We desire them to come to a knowledge of the truth. We daily rehearse this. Simple truths though they are. It's almost, I feel silly sometimes that I have to remind myself of it so regularly. Jesus died for me. He paid the penalty for my sins. I'm a sinner before a holy God, but but through the cross of Christ, I'm accepted on the merits of Christ alone. It's, it's so simple and yet so easy for us to distort it. I've become convinced that, that we never outgrow our need to rehearse those truths daily. That's not a luxury reserved for those with, with lots of, of free time on their hands, lots of disposable time and disposable income. They have the luxury of sitting aside in a quiet corner with a cup of tea having their devotions this is a daily requirement for all of us to to preach to ourselves the true pure undefiled undistorted gospel of christ that i have been crucified with christ i no longer live christ lives in me the life i live i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me this will be our protection this will be our salvation this will be what keeps us clinging to Christ rather than deserting him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we want to, to start anew and to say all of our desire will be to please God, not to please man. We want to, to come to you purely on the basis of the merits of Christ, clinging to them, laying ourselves before the cross with great joy, with great joy that Christ has given himself as our Savior. Father, we we pray, protect our church from gospel distortions. Keep us in the bounds of your truth. Lord, Lord, raise us up as mighty warriors who know the truth, who are set free by the truth, and who long to see others set free by the same. Father, we ask that you will do this for the good of your kingdom and the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.